we'll look at the whole of the chapter. I'm not going to read the whole of the chapter, but, but it really hangs together, so we're going to take a look at it all, um, all together. When we were last here, um, we were in chapter 9, of course, and we looked at it all together as well. Um, we saw basically this response to the people. The word is read in chapter 8, then the response in its fullness is fleshed out in chapter 9, uh, as they hear the word of the Lord read for what seemed to be either a long time or some of them perhaps never having heard the word of God, um, the scriptures. And they respond with just an outpouring of repentance and by retelling and recounting the story of God's redemptive work, which then gives them hope that God might redeem again, that God might give them this other, another chance uh, within the Holy Land um, to restore and renew and reform the city of Jerusalem. And so there's this powerful moment, and we're seeing that continuing on as we get into chapter 10. In response, right at the very end of chapter 9, in verse 38, it's kind of leading into where we are in chapter 10, um, they are going to make this, this solemn pledge. It's not a new covenant they're making. There's some of that language that almost makes you think that it is. The covenant has not changed, per se, but it's a solemn pledge to, to recommit themselves to the covenant that God has already made with them. And it's just a powerful display here, what we're going to see. It's going to basically bring us to where we are in chapter 10. Uh, They're going to do more than just dream dreams. They're going to do more than just aspire. They're going to make a public, a solemn, even a written pledge here to God and, and in a sense, with one another. Uh, In verses 1 through 27, and we'll kind of look at this in three chunks, in those first 27 verses, and you'll notice there's just a whole bunch of names, right? Go ahead and glance at it. Uh, although all these names are going to, I would say about 90% of them are going to go over our heads. We're not going to know most of these names. They represent something really significant. I look at each of them. So, of course, you see Nehemiah's name there at the beginning. He's the leader. So, ultimately, the buck stops with him as the one who's leading this. Um, and then it sort of mentions a little bit of his genealogy. He's the governor. He's the son of uh, Hakaliah and Zedekiah. And then there's another group, verses 2 and all the way through uh, verse 8 is one group there. And then there's a group of the Levites, verse 9 through 13 or so. And then there's the chiefs of the people, the leaders of the people, verse 14 and through verse 27. So there's kind of these groups here, and all of them are going to say, I'm going to sign my name, and I'm going to be a part of this. And then actually it's sort of, and everybody else is in verse 28, you'll see, and we'll get there in a moment. The rest of the people... Uh, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, and it goes on and lists them. But so this is this is they're they're putting their name there on the dotted line, as well as thinking about a few of them are are historic figures that are just explaining who these individuals are. Um, they're going to outline this document, as I said in in chapter nine, verse twenty-eight there or thirty-eight rather. And uh, before they give this pledge, let's, let's think through why this matters, because it matters a whole, whole lot, and it's going to be really key for us to understand the rest of this. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you, why, why, why was it so significant for them to make this public declaration? Any thoughts on that? Anything that comes to mind immediately? Okay, and we think more broadly, historically, why would other people do this? And on one hand, think how this is going to send a message to everyone else around them. Right? They're going to sort of put, they're going to say, this is what we're about. This is what we're going to do. They're going to sort of put themselves on the line in this way. I mean, think about the Declaration of Independence. And we all think about that on July 4th, right? And we, we, we romanticize it in such a way that we, we forget how bold of a move this was. It was high treason, right? Had they been caught, <laughs> had they lost the war, most of these men would have lost their lives or gone to prison, 
right? And so as they signed this document in early July, it's kind of late June and early July, it's ratified on July 4th, um, they had not won the war, <laughs> not even close. In fact, they were not doing all that great at the war. It took a little while. Um, but they're basically saying that we are an independent nation and we're going to stand on this. We're going to sign our names on this. Um, John Hancock with the big signature that we think about being on there. But each of these men saying we're going to make this public statement. This matters to us. We're going to be a new nation. This is going to be our ideals. And, uh, and so it's this public declaration, right? And so the people of Israel are doing the same thing. This is what we're going to be about. These are going to be our values. This is what we are going to do together as a people. So that's one sense. Uh, what's, what's maybe another reason? Can you think of anything? So that's the public thing. Is there another way that this would be significant? Maybe even internally? Yeah. Yeah. There's a sense in which even the interpersonal accountability, right? So um, I did a wedding. Um, Mark was here, wasn't he? I thought I saw him a little bit ago. He might have left. Um, so we were over at Mark's place. We did a wedding there. And anytime I'm doing a wedding, I think I've done five since I've been here, um, one of the things that I say in the wedding is just explaining why weddings came to be, why this is historically significant. And originally, the main thing was, yes, the bride and groom are promising each other, but they're promising in front of everybody else. And so they're saying, you are going to hold us to this pledge. We're going to hold one another, but there's a sense of holding one another in accountability to this as we make this pledge. And so there is this sense of... Um, Put, again, I would even use that same language of putting themselves in the line. They're saying, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it together. We're going to hold ourselves accountable in this way. So that's that first section there, verses 1 through 27. And now we're going to basically get the content. What is this about? What is it that they're pledging? And in verse 28 through 31, the people are going to proclaim their conviction to be fully devoted to the Lord and to His Word. Devoted to the Lord by, ultimately, obeying the word. Let's read it together. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of the Lord, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of, of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, he will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and, he, uh, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So I'm going to break some of this down if it's a little bit gray and obscure exactly what this is. But, but I think with a little bit of unpacking, it's fairly clear that commitments that they're making at this first part, there's going to be a second part as well. Um, but let me ask you first, is there anything that does stand out to you? What, what specifically are they naming here as part of their devotion? If we kind of think of this first part, these verses 28 through 31, it's more of personal holiness. The other part is going to be more institutional and religious, what is it that they're committing to personally in terms of their holiness? So yeah, the Word of God in that most, so yeah, the, I mean, that's the foundation, right? Yeah, these, these, these standard, these final commitments of the Lord, absolutely. Yeah, that would be there. That's the, the, what is written to Moses, absolutely. Anything else more specific? What's this part about intermarriage? 
Huh? Staying separate from the people of the land. Is this like a prejudice thing? You know, what, is, what is this about? Why can't they intermarry with the other peoples? It's religious. It's spiritual. The people of the nations, the other people that are there, which this was a very diverse place. You would have all kinds of different kingdoms, kind of mini kingdoms in the area, and they would have had very different faiths. They would have believed very different things. And so this isn't ethnic. I mean, even among the people of, of Israel, you have different ethnicities in, in a sense, um, certainly eventually. Um, but it's saying that you're, you're not going to intermarry. So if you are a follower of Yahweh, you will not marry someone who is a pagan. Um, you, will not, you will not give your child, your son, or your daughter to intermarry with someone who is not a, a, a believer, a follower of God. And this was going to be important, not merely for that individual, but for the community, for the community to be pure, for the community to stay solid. That's what had been such an issue before, which ultimately led them into exile, was that they even, even Solomon, even the king, is going to bring in these wives that have very different faiths. In, in ways that would not ultimately, of course, honor God. Um, so they're not going to marry with the, the Canaanites the, and these other peoples that are there. That's one commitment that they're making. Anything else? So basically saying, yeah, so it's saying, curse be me if I break this. Yeah, that's a good question. So it's like, we're, I'm going to promise to this, and if I break this, May a curse be on me. So again, it's that solemn vow. That's a great point. Yeah, that could be confusing. Yes, isn't that interesting? So this is speaking about business. So, so again, God has told them that there is one day a week that you must rest. It is to be holy unto the Lord. It is a time for spiritual things, for rest. And so they're committing. They're going to say, even if, again, because there's these other nations all around them that don't have a Sabbath and they don't think anything of working, uh, seven days a week on the, on the Sabbath. Sabbath was Saturday, um, the, the seventh day of the week. And they're going to say, as much as that's going to be a temptation, as much as that might make us look awkward, as much as it might be difficult for my business I'm running, I'm going to say no. We're going to commit to keeping the Sabbath day holy. So there's a lot of things here, again, that once you start getting into it, you see, wow, this is pretty practical stuff. Who do you marry? How do you work? You know, what, what matters most? Um, we were just talking about this on the way in here, talking about sports and things like that. Um, you know, whether, whether we would let our kids play on, you know, there, Jackson has a, a football practice tonight. We said, sorry, you're going to be at church. <laughs> and, um, and now this is, this is speaking specifically of the Sabbath. And there's still this sense of what is most important as we weigh these things. So that's kind of, this first part is personal holiness, verses 28 through 31. And then there's verses 32 through 39, and it's a little long, but I'll try to read it quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and this is going to speak a little bit more uh, about the ministry. Um, let me see if there's something else I want to say before I read it. They're going to make a serious commitment, ultimately, to supporting the ministry. This is going to unfold, basically, uh, let's see how this plays out. Verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, and the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God according to our Father's houses, 
at the time appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. So again, they're still referencing the law here. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, so their, their crops, and the first fruits of every, every, every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, and to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who ministers in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers, to the house of God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. And for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Hopefully this is a little bit more clear, but still I think it'll take some unpacking. So, So we remember that this is what the ministry looked like under the Old Covenant, right? This looks different from what we would see in the book of Ephesians, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, right? This is an old covenant context, and yet within this context, where they are within redemptive history, they're committing to support the ministry and all of its parts, and it's pretty multifaceted, isn't it? It's a lot, it's a lot going on here. Um, anything that stands out to you particularly as we read through this? Anything that's interesting, or, or even as Russell had, any, any questions about that? I mean... Yeah, for service. Yeah, so firstborn would come to service. There's always this priority. Um, yeah, it almost sounds like a sacrifice, right? <laughs> so they're not sacrificing, but yeah, to ultimately to be given priority for service. And, you know, I need to go back and look. I think that's in Deuteronomy where that's laid out, but yeah, that's a great question. I think there's another voice back here. Gary? So, so a tithe means a first tenth. Um, not merely a tenth, but a first tenth. And so, in other words, you, to bring the tithe all together, and now that, that, that tenth of that whole collection we brought in for this particular purpose. Yeah. So a tenth of a tenth. So, so they would, in a sense, you, you would, and you've even got these different parts, right? So you've got, like, um, you've got the fruits, you've got the cattle, you've got all these different things. And so I don't know, I'm, and I'm, some of these things are a little bit fuzzy on me, Perhaps they would collect part of it in one part of the temple, and then from there that tenth would be taken in for this particular uh, obser- uh, observance. But, but yeah, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I wish I knew exactly what that looked like logistically. I'm, I'm not quite sure how they did it. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions there? I mean, let's think about the sacrifices, right? Because the regular sacrifices was, was central to their worship. Right? We, we no longer do that. Christ was the final sacrifice. We were talking about this in family worship last night with the kids. And uh, we know that Christ was our, our substitute and ultimately became the sacrificial lamb for us. But at this time, still pointing to Christ, this is how a temporary atonement, a temporary appeasement of the wrath of God was made, was through these sacrifices. Thus the animals, thus the grain, and so on and so forth. These things are coming forth. And so they're going to give their first fruits in verse 35, their animals and herds in verse 36. Again, their tithes. Look how many times the word tithe shows up. Uh, verse 37, twice. 
And then in verse 38, maybe that's the last time. So at least three times here. And so this was, this was a big part of, of ultimately their organization in terms of how they supported the ministry. Um, they insist upon the proper order of the workers. Look, they've got the priest, and they've got the sons of Aaron, and they've got the Levites, and the gatekeepers, and the, the singers. All this, in other words, they're saying, we're going to do just as God has commanded to the best of our ability. We're going to put these things in order and, uh, and seek to be faithful to these commandments that the Lord has given us for our worship. And they make this final declaration in verse 39 there, and it sums it up really well. Look, he says, just a few words. We will not neglect the house of our God. And you think about it, like as you, as, as you put yourself in their shoes, like perhaps that is the thing that weighs heaviest on them, that they have neglected the things of God in terms of their own organized worship. We, um, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit. We are so individually minded today. We often think it's just me and Jesus. There's nothing else. But God has always worked with a people. Now, salvation is individual. I can't save any of you, and you can't save me. You can't speak for me before God one day. So there's a sense in which it is very individual, and yet God has always worked covenantally. He's always worked collectively with the people. Um, that's why the people are called, referred to as the church or the saints, plural, in the book of Revelation over and over and, and over again throughout the Scriptures, but I speak specifically of Revelation when it comes to the end, what God has done and designed and ultimately fulfilled. And, uh, and so it's just, there's a lot of that here that, that I think challenges the way we often think about salvation today. But to be fair, you might be thinking, and several of you had some good thoughts and questions, there's a sense in which we might go, but we know we don't worship this way today, right? Again, we're, we're not going to come up here and do a sacrifice here. We call this an altar, but we're not actually doing that. We mean it figuratively, of course, a place where we would offer um, a sacrifice of praise, for instance, or a prayer. Um, so we know we don't, we don't do these things, so, so what do we take away from this? Well, I want to give you three things. I hope I've mentioned a few things here just in passing, but I want us to think about three things that I think we can really take away from this. Nehemiah and the people heard the word of God regarding their personal holiness and, again, their support for the ministry, um, and then they modeled this faithful response in, in three ways. So first, I think that we should see the depth of their devotion to the word of God. And it is so admirable, so devoted, again, putting themselves in the line, both to those around them as well as to one another. They're going to say, this is what God has said. We're going to do the best of our ability to obey these things. Uh, And it's not merely a sort of legalistic letter of the law. In fact, if you compared this to to what God says in in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, they're adding some, some practical inputs and practical application of this that is not explicitly in the text. Um, and, and I'll mention some of that again in a minute. So they're just saying, to, for, as best as we can see well, what God is saying in these things, within our context at this moment, this is how we're going to flesh these things out. And yet it's all here, this, this great reverence for the Word. Um, even though we stand on this farther side of Revelation, right? We have the New Testament, which is wonderful. Uh, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't know about God the Son the way that we do in Christ. Um, but their devotion to the Word should really, really inspire us. It's going to be good to hear. Uh, and secondly, uh, we should see their devotion to support the institutional ministry, uh, what we would call the church in our context at this stage in redemptive history. Um, we, we live in a very anti-institutional age. Right? This goes back at least to the 1960s, but it is, is, is just sort of increased in the last 30 to 40 years uh, just a really anti-institutional age. A lot of suspicion of institutions. 
Not to say that there's never any warrant for that, and yet it's just become really ingrained in our culture, sort of a skepticism toward institutions. Um, and this is true for the church. Many people feel a sort of an apathy toward the church. Again, they'd rather kind of just, just me and Jesus, and I don't need the other stuff, all the institutional stuff, and so there's a little bit of hesitancy towards that. But what we see here is just this zeal for the institutional organization of God's people in a really powerful way, in a way that, again, I think should, should inspire us, should encourage us in the work that we're doing here. So not only a dedication to the Word, not only a, a zeal for the organized ministry of God's people, but third and lastly, it's that point that I mentioned a moment ago, is just their practical will here. Um, it's not merely principle. They're not saying, we're going to follow God and just leave it at that. No, they're going to say, this is how we're going to do it. This is, we're going to commit together. This is how we're going to support uh, the Levites and the sons of Aaron. This is how we're going to support the temple. This is how we're going to give financially. This is how we're going to um, order our families and thinking about things like marriage. This is how we're going to order even our firstborn son, the, you know, the, the prize uh, of the family, the, the one who would be most important in this way. And so, so they're going to lay it out exactly how they intend to support the ministry and its workers as well as uphold their own holiness. And so just a really powerful picture for us. And I hope that that's encouraging to you tonight. I'd, I'd love to hear any, any thoughts or reflections or other questions you have from the text. Yeah, Bob. I can hear you. Yeah, there, there's something, we, we take physical gestures that are, and hopefully, so Bob's making the point that there is great value in the physical posturing of offering ourselves and these sort of things. And, and of course, that's very true. I mean, um, even little things, so you'll notice I'll raise a hand sometime in worship, and it's not like I think I'm getting closer to God somehow, but it's showing a sense of surrender and praise. Um, again, for someone to come and kneel at the altar, there's nothing magical about this. This is a piece of wood with some carpet. And yet it's a showing of humility before God. It's saying, I'm, I'm going to step out and I'm going to, to bow before the Lord in front of everybody watching me and I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to give a special uh, you know, prayer or adv- advocacy to God. And there is something moving and powerful in this, something good. Um, the Bible doesn't you know, always command us in some of these things, but it does inspire us. David did a lot of those things. And David even danced, right? He wasn't a Baptist probably. He's probably Episcopalian. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it's just, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot of posturing and things like that, that that are somewhat culturally connected, right? Certain cultures do more of this or that. The Cherokee, you said, do a certain thing here. And, um, and, and yet still, there's a, there's a way in which, within our own way, some of us are less expressive and are less likely to do some of these things. And yet still, there's a way within our own chair, within our own heart, you know, that we can do these things. And yet, yeah, it is, it is meaningful and significant. Yeah. You go to other cultures. I'm telling you, you go to... Uh, I have a friend who's a missionary in Malawi, and I've seen his worship services. I'm talk- you want to talk about excitement and energy there. I mean, it's just it's an incredible thing, and it's, part of it's their culture. Their culture is very expressive and, and so on. So, yeah, good example. Any other final thoughts? Any of that? Questions? Okay. All right, well, let's pray, and uh, God willing, we'll get to chapter 11 very soon. And uh, let's go to the Lord.
Our God, we do thank you. And Lord, we do want to give you our all. And we want to humble ourselves before you. And we want to praise you, God. And we want to follow your word. Lord, I pray that we would know it, that we would read it, God, that we would meditate upon it. God, that we would seek to apply it here at Starnes Cove Baptist Church, that we would seek to apply it in our own lives. God, that we would be zealous for, for your church. Um, Lord, we know that, um, God, there are so many churches around. Um, you've placed us in this church, and we want to be faithful, God, as, as to the ministries and the different things that we're involved in here. And yet, God, we rejoice and delight that, God, the work that you are doing is far bigger than, than what we are, where we are, even as we want to be, God, absolutely devoted to the work here. So I pray, God, you just give us encouragement in that. If there are people in our church that are discouraged and feel disconnected from, from the institutional body here, God, I, I pray you would encourage them, God, that they would lean in, that we would be faithful to love, to show compassion and care and, and accountability and all these things, God, that are ultimately a part of that, a part of that affiliation and connection together. Lord, I thank you for each one who's here. Pray your blessing over them for health, um, Lord, for contentment, for peace, uh, for faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great night. Brother Paul, you're doing good. Thank you.